Amen. You may be seated. Welcome. Somebody left some Altoids up here for me. They must be trying to give me a message. At any rate, great to see y'all. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you, and you can find the sixth chapter of Isaiah on page 534. It's really Isaiah is right in kind of the, the middle of the uh, Old Testament, uh, just right after Psalms. What a great book. What a great study uh, this, this whole book is. Well, 1997, Pam and I moved from the buckle of the Bible Belt, Las Vegas, Nevada, just kidding, to Dallas, Texas. And we moved there to open up an office. And when we got there, we kept hearing a very unusual question. And that was, where do you guys go to church? I promise you, we never heard that in Las Vegas. And so over and over again, people say, so where do you go to church? And I felt a little bit uncomfortable about that because I grew up Jewish, went to Catholic high school, grew up Jewish and really didn't think about God. Pam grew up agnostic at best. Her dad was an atheist. Her, her mom was a Mormon. So we just didn't talk about religion. All of a sudden we get to Dallas and everybody's talking about it. And so finally we get invited to a Christmas Eve service at a place called Prestonwood in Dallas. And just to give you an idea, we walked into the worship center that sat 7,000 people. Talk about feeling uncomfortable. The fact is, we didn't want to go. I certainly didn't want to go, but there was something going on in Pam's life that I really couldn't figure out. She was just feeling like something was missing. And here we were. I mean, we had businesses that were really doing well. We had beautiful homes, beautiful cars, great kids. She had one, an awesome husband. Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right, forgive me. <laughs> the Lord's going to strike me dead here. And so we finally went, and for the first time ever, heard the truth about salvation in Jesus Christ. And I was rocked by that. Didn't want to hear it. I thought I could just do life in my own strength and my own power. That was Christmas Eve, 1997. The people that invited us continued to invite us back to church. And I went to a men's Bible study a couple weeks later. A guy named Dr. Tony Evans was preaching. And I'm telling you, that just changed my world. January 11th of 1998, we're sitting in a worship service. And their choir sat 500 people, all right? And at the end of the service, the pastor said, just open up your heart. Open up your soul. Let Jesus in. Now, I'm not sure that's theologically correct, but I'm telling you, God used that to change me. And, and I just broke in that moment. And it was the Baptist church. So somebody come up to me and says, do you want to go forward? And I think, no, I don't want to go forward and let everybody see me crying. But, but so that night, one of the pastors came over to our house, Mike, Mike Fetchner, and, and Mike shared with us the fact that our sin had separated us from God. And that Jesus came into this world. God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross in our place. It was a sacrifice for us. And he was raised on the third day. And by turning from your sin, that's called repentance, and turning to Jesus Christ, you could have eternal life. Well, I wasn't picking up what he was putting down. But I said this. I said, listen, I know Pam is ready. But I'm not. I'm going to read the whole Bible. I'm going to do a cost-benefit analysis on it. If it works for me, I'll let you know. I was an idiot. Still am sometimes. 
Pam looks at me and she goes, Bill, if I were dying of cancer right now, would you pray for my eternal salvation? I said, of course I would. I pray with everything I have. And she says, why won't you pray for your own? You're dying. And once again, don't really know what all happened in that moment, but God just changed my heart. We got on our knees. We asked God to forgive us of our sins, and he did. We asked God to change us, and he radically changed us. That night, Mike said, listen, on this walk with Christ, you're going to have periods of doubt. I knew exactly what he was talking about because I was living in doubt. But he says, the way you push that doubt away, four things, and I say this all the time. He says, first thing is read the word of God so you know the God of the word. You know this God who's changed you. This is his word to us. Second thing he says was pray. Pray without ceasing. That's how you communicate with God. It's all about a relationship. Third, he said, surround yourself with other Christians. And we learn pretty quickly, you want to surround yourself with growing Christians, people that are, that are running hard after the Lord. And the fourth thing he said was get involved in church and get involved in Bible study. And we didn't know any better. We thought that's what all Christians did. And so we did. And our lives were radically changed. The church was open. We were there. Why? Because we had been forgiven a sin that we had been given for, for our sins, something we could not do for ourselves. And we understood God's grace. We wanted to be with God's people. It was a, it was a radical change for us. The reality is, though, each one of us has been forgiven many sins. If you're in Christ, you have been forgiven your sins. And when you truly comprehend what God has done, you can't help but want to spend time with him and spend time with his people. Now, we're in this series. Today's the last day in this series. It's called Follow Me, the Life of a Christ Follower. And what we've been talking about, it's, it's really a foundational series. What we've been talking about, the fact is that following Jesus is all about relationships. It's about a relationship with him. It's our vertical relationship that moves into horizontal relationships. And let me just put up this review slide. And this gives us an idea. We talked about a, 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 a Christ follower, somebody that abides in Christ, that connects in community and shares in the mission. And we talked about abiding in Christ is about God time. It's about spending time with the Lord. It's our relationship. You get that right, everything else falls into place. And that moves into gather time where we are doing that right now. And isn't it just incredible to be able to sing together? It was nice to have a stripped down worship team so we could hear each other's terrible voices. Or at least you could maybe hear my terrible voice. And then group time, small groups. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then give time about how, how God is a giver and he gave his son to us. And we are called to in reflecting Christ that we give. And then today we're going to talk about go time. And here's the big idea. A right view of God leads to a right response to God. If you have a right view of God, it leads to a right response to God. And so thus, go time is a right, right response to God time. If you get your God time right, if the vertical is right, if you're spending time with the Lord, if, if, you're, if you have the mind of Christ, it moves into, I want to share the love of Christ that's been given to me. The fact is, gather time, Group time, give time, and go time are all a right response to God time. Now, even though at that moment I didn't fully understand my salvation, I understood this. 
God had saved me. My relationship with God had been reconciled by the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. My sins had been forgiven. I'd been adopted. I had a new nature. I had received an inheritance. I'd received grace. And that changed everything. Now, as Pam and I both started to get into his word, we started to change and we started to tell other people about what was going on in our life. And listen, when you understand, when you really comprehend what God has done in your life, you want to tell people. And so when you read the book of Isaiah, you get to chapter 6, and it's all of a sudden, Isaiah gets this incredible view of God. And it changes him forever. That's what we see here. He was given a glimpse of the holiness of God and it changed his life. Now in chapters 1 through 5, it describes the failure of God's people. I remember when we first came to Christ and I started reading the Old Testament. I saw how the people kept rejecting God and rejecting God. And he kept doing so many great things for him. I'm thinking, why, why do they keep rejecting God? And somebody once called me anti-Semitic. How can I be anti-me? I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm not anti-Semitic. I just saw the fact that God had done all these wonderful things and they would just reject him. So the people need a rat. They needed a radical change. They needed a radical act of God's grace in their lives. And, and it started with Isaiah getting a right view of God and then going out and sharing that with others. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. A right view of God helps me to see God's holiness, and it's awesome. A right view of God helps me to see God's holiness, and it's what? Awesome. Look at verse, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 1 says, King Uzziah died. King Uzziah, he was the 10th king of Judah. Remember, after David, you had Solomon, and then Solomon died, and, and you, the kingdom is split into two. You've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel had all bad kings. Judah had some good kings. Uzziah started out as a good king. He became a king at 16 years old. He was a king for 52 years, and then he died. What happened, though? Is because he started out strong, seeking the Lord, he was able to accomplish great things. And then he started reading his own press clippings. He became proud, proud of what he had done. God judges. The time is about 740 B.C. Uzziah dies, and that's the start of Isaiah as a prophet. And all of a sudden, it's like God pulls back the curtain of heaven and gives Isaiah a peek. Why would he do that? 
Because the fact that Uzziah died, it was devastating. For most people, for most of you, it would be like the only king you'd ever known, the only president you ever known. What do we do now? The king is dead. And God shows him that he's still on the throne. The death of Uzziah was cataclysmic. What are we going to do without him? The fact is, even in the most difficult times, hear me on this, God is still on his throne. When it seems like the world is burning around you, God is still on his throne. When it seems like we can't make a way, God is still on his throne. When it seems like there's no way out, what? God is still on his throne. Listen, many of you have been through cataclysmic events. Some of you may be going through them right now. And there's nothing easy about going through a cataclysmic, a tough event. The fact is, even in the midst of these storms, God is sovereign. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. He's your refuge in the midst of storms. Pam and I have had to learn that the tough way. Some of you have learned that the tough way. When I was 19, my oldest brother committed suicide. That was tough. Four years ago, my twin brother, father of four, committed suicide. A year later, his wife and two of his children were flying up to Quantico to see my oldest nephew graduate from officer candidacy school, and their plane crashed. It was family day. Cataclysmic. My nephew, or my cousin, chartered a jet for me to fly from Scottsdale to Richmond, Virginia to pick him up and take him back to Indianapolis, which is where we're from. We get back about 3 o'clock in the morning, and his youngest brother, because of football practice, didn't go. So now it's just the two of them. And the next morning, we get up, and Drew, the oldest, who ended up graduating number one in his class at VMI, was laying on the bed with his younger brother, opening up the scriptures and said, God's going to bring us through this. Even though they went through this cataclysmic event, God was still on the throne. And, and that that's so important for us to have a view of that because we will go through difficult times. And so Isaiah gets a glimpse of the glory of God, and it was awesome. Now, here's the thing. Jesus tells us sometimes, don't try to do this on your own. He says, come to me. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says this. I love the invitations of Jesus. He says, follow me. He says, come to me. He says, abide in me. Here he says, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We were talking to Chris, our worship leader, before the service, and I mentioned to you last week that Jared Lovecamp, a GCU student, died a week and a half ago. He's one of Chris's uh, uh, life leaders, young man from Kentucky whose family are strong believers. He was a strong believer. And even though this was a cataclysmic event, 
their focus and their trust was in the Lord. Isaiah hears this. He, 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 he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. If you don't have that circled in your Bible, circle, I saw the Lord. Now, when it says, I saw the Lord, we know that the Bible says no one sees the Lord. But this is, if you want a big theological word, this is a Christophany. In fact, John, I think it's 1241, reminds us that it was Isaiah that saw Jesus. This is a, this is a pre-incarnate Christ that he sees. He says, I saw the Lord upon the throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He, he, he actually saw the, the hem of his robe in the temple. And then we just see this. All this angelic activity, it says in verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. These are they're burning ones. And each had six wings. Now that would be a sight to see, right? With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Covering his face, is a, it's a picture of reverence. And covering his, his, his feet, it's a picture of humility. And, and, and flying with his other two, it's, it's a sign of service. And one calls to the other. Notice that it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world, whole earth is full of his glory. It speaks of the omnipresence of God. God is still on the throne. Uzziah is dead. But God is still on his throne. Sometimes we need to be reminded that God is still on his throne. When it says holy, 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 it means that he's different. He's transcendent. In fact, when you see a threefold repetition like that, it's like he can't even describe it. In fact, don't do it right now, but read Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel tries to describe this vision of God that he gets. It was like this, and it was like this, and it was like, I mean, it's just like, he couldn't describe it. It was so awesome. Yet, how often do we miss God's glory as we go through our daily routines? And here, Isaiah gets to experience the awesomeness of God. His presence. Verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The foundation of this incredible temple shook. Now, have you ever been in a home where all of a sudden uh, there's a sonic boom over you? And, and like the windows are rattling, the house is shaking. It's like, what was that? It didn't even compare to what must have happened here. Isaiah gets a glimpse of God's holiness and of his glory, and it was awesome. Let me ask you, is that your view of God? Do you see God as one and only, as transcendent, as awesome, as holy? When you do, it changes everything. It changes your perspective. So first we see a right view of God helps me see his holiness. And it's what? Awesome. All right, second. A right view of God helps me to see my sin. Oh, we can get rid of that. Thanks. My sin, which is humbling. See, a right view of God helps me to have a right view of self. Whenever you see someone come into the presence of a holy God in the Bible, they're flat on their face. 
John in Revelation, Ezekiel, Joshua. I mean, you just flat on their face. I mean, there's, there's no pride in that moment. And the amazing thing is, as sincere as Isaiah's worship may have been, prior to this moment, it was missing something. He had never been really gripped by God's greatness. Maybe it was just going to the motions, showing up at church on Sunday, thinking, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm, I'm probably better. I'm better than Eric. The fact is, today something different happened. He got a right view of God. And that changed everything. He was gripped by God's greatness. He sees his own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. And he was undone. Look at verse 5. And I said, woe. Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was absolutely undone, humbled before a mighty and awesome Lord. He's on his face before the Lord. In fact, this is, I mean, it's just, this, this is the first time Isaiah speaks in the book, and, and he, he speaks in a way that he's just undone. Why? He knew that God is a holy God, and God cannot allow sin in his presence. So what's Isaiah thinking in this moment? Death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so it's in that moment he's thinking death. And what does he get? Grace. And you're going to see that in a minute. Isaiah, confronted with the vision of the Lord, he knew he was a sinner, and he must have thought his life was over. And for the first time, he probably truly worships God. He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice what he says here. He says, For I'm a man of unclean lips. Why does it matter what his lips are? That his lips are dirty. Well, we know from Matthew chapter 20, 12, verse 34, it says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's speaking about something that's going on in his heart. His heart wasn't right, but his heart is getting ready to change. He wasn't going to change it. God was going to change it. The fact is, before Christ, we have hearts of stone, the Bible tells us. Jeremiah tells us he takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. That's salvation. When we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we really are. And that is humbling. And we're now at a place where God can start to really use us. The greatest thing we can be is humbled before him, broken. See, in this moment, Isaiah must have been expecting judgment, which makes these next few verses so incredible. All right, let's review. Right view of God helps me see God's holiness, which is awesome. My sin, which is humbling. But third, it helps me to see God's grace, which is amazing. Look at verse 6. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So one of these seraphim, one of these burning ones, peels off from this flight pattern, it, it, going around the throne, and he dives straight for Isaiah, and he's got this tong with these, these, this coal, and it's like, if that's me, like, man, I'm ducking, I'm getting under the pew. Not that that's going to do anything. But like, if I see this burning coal coming at me, So why does he have it in tongs? Because this coal comes from the altar, the altar of sacrifice, the s- altar for sacrifice for sins. It was a holy place, so he, he couldn't even touch it with his hands. He would have to take it with tongs. The coal came from a place of sacrifice, a place of forgiveness, a place of, of, of atonement where our sins are covered. And he touches Isaiah's mouth with it. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. And then this, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. You got to step back for a minute and realize the implications of that. Sins, past, present, and future, atoned for. Cleansed, covered, never to be brought up again. That's salvation. He has been purified by the touch. This is amazing grace. Because of your faith in the finished work of of the cross, we can have the same cleansing. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a place of sacrifice. It's a place that his blood was shed to cover our sins. His body was broken in our place. This is a picture right here of what a coming Messiah would do for those that put their faith and trust in him. Isaiah, in that moment, is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He's now ready to be used It is in that moment that we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. Look at, what, look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, what that says. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange, where at the moment of salvation, Jesus takes upon himself our sinfulness, and he gives to us, he imputes to us his perfect righteousness so that now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what allows us access into heaven. That, it's in that moment that the, the, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, and we now have access into the Holy of Holies, the place that only the high priest could go once a year, and we can now come boldly before the throne of grace. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It is in this moment that because of a right view of God that Isaiah had, he all of a sudden has a right response to God's call. Which leads us to this. A right view of God 
helps me to respond to God's call, which is compelling. It's a compelling call. Look at verse 8. Isaiah goes on, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will I, who will go for us? So for the first time, we see God speaking in this passage. And it's as if he's, it's as if he's saying, I need a spokesman for me. Not just anyone, but I want someone who knows what it means to be forgiven. Now that little boy out there making all that noise, he doesn't know what it's like to be forgiven. Because he would, he'd be, unless that's glee, for you guys sitting over there next to the playground. But the reality is, he's saying, I want someone who understands grace, who's experienced grace. Isaiah couldn't help himself. He wasn't even part of the conversation, but he has to butt in. Have you ever done that before? Like, there's a conversation going on over here. You're having a conversation here. And all of a sudden, like, you've got to be in that conversation. And that's Isaiah. I mean, he's just like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he says, then I said, here I am, send me. I got to go. Based on what's happened to me, I can't not go. I have to go. I want people to experience the same thing I've experienced. Now, in that moment, he didn't really understand what kind of commission he was going to get. I mean, he, he didn't have as bad of a ministry as Jeremiah had to go through, but it was rough. People weren't going to listen to him. The fact is, he says, here I am. Send me. Should not that be the response of all of us that have received God's grace? Who've had our sins covered. Who've had our guilt and our shame cleansed. A right view of God leads to a right reverence of God. Leads to a right response to God. And we see now in verses 9 and following this commission he was going to get. And he said, go. Go. It's go time. Go. Now, you're going to go, but people aren't going to listen. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart dull of make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and their and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Unless they have spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, they won't turn and they won't be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? That seems like a tough assignment, Lord. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be turned again like a turbanth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed as its stump. And he was talking in that moment about the exile that would take place because the people's hearts continued to be dull even though they kept hearing the message of the gospel. But here's the fact. Each one of us has been commissioned by God to go. Every one of us. If you're in Christ, and I pray you are, and if you're not, I pray that today you'll receive God's grace. 
that Jesus, before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8, I'll put it on the screen, he says, he says to his disciples, he says, but you will receive power. That's the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right where you are, in Judea, the surrounding areas, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses. In, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 20, excuse me, verses yeah, 18 through 20, he says this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Go. Go. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a commission for disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who's had their sins forgiven, those who've... who've who've been changed from the inside out. We have a commission. This is not just a commission for the leaders of the church. In fact, my pastor in, in Dallas, Jack Graham, used to say, every member is a minister. Now, that wasn't just lip service. The fact is, we're called to go and to speak. I'm so thankful for those people that spoke to us in Dallas. Never dreaming I'd be a Christian, one, but two, be a pastor makes reunions with my friends from high school or college just seem like really awkward because it's like you, there's no way you're a pastor. But that's God. God changes people. It doesn't mean necessarily full-time ministry, but it might. But it means at the very least going to your neighbors, going to your friends, your family, your coworkers, students. Listen, if you've been gripped by God's grace, how can you not go? If we pray for divine appointments, God, put someone in my path today that I can share the love of Christ with. Guess what happens? If you pray for it, God will put somebody in your path. The fact is, we have the very words of life. So Pam and I received Christ in 1998. In 2001, God called us to full-time ministry. Okay, that was wild. She walked into my office one day, and she says, Bill, I'm surrendering to full-time ministry. And I said, you can't do that. You're my partner. She says, well, I just did. She turned around and walked out. It wasn't that bad. But, and I fought it for six months. So I went on staff at Prestwood in Dallas. Was on staff there until 2008, helped launch a new church. And then God called us to move to Phoenix, and we did not want to go. We did not like Phoenix. We didn't like the people here. We thought it was a terrible place. Boy, were we wrong. Like, it, it wasn't until after, it was like one morning God just opened our eyes and said, this is where I want you. And, and God has just allowed us to see his glory in a way just because of our obedience. I remember when we first surrendered to ministry, Mike Buster, who was the executive pastor, he offered me a job. He offered me a job being the project manager on a $36 million addition to the church. Now, that, that gives you some perspective right there. And I remember saying to him, I said, Mike, I actually want, I was looking for a, a ministry job. And he said, Bill, everything we do here is ministry. And I took that kind of as a flippant res response. But the fact is, everything we do, it should be ministry. It's service. And the fact is, all of a sudden, I had all these architects and engineers, laborers. And so it became a ministry for me. God convicted me like, Bill, like, I wanted a title. And God wanted me to be in the ministry. 
We don't need a title to be in the ministry. We just be in the ministry. And then he told me how much I was going to get paid. And I looked at him. I said, now, is that a month? He goes, no, that's a year. And I remember telling Pam, well, our life just changed. But why would we go? Because each week we kept hearing the truth of the gospel, that our sins had been forgiven, that we'd been forgiven a debt we could not pay ourselves, that Jesus, in love, went to the cross, died a sacrificial death in our place. He died a death we deserved, and he was raised on the third day, and that by putting our trust and faith in him, we could have eternal life. And this is the message that will heal our land. So we came here, didn't know anybody. That's amazing grace. There's reasons people don't want to go. Talked about it in staff the other day. We just got like, what are some reasons people don't want to go? Here's a, here's a list of them. First of all, reasons we don't go or share. Rejection. We're fear of rejection. How many of you love to be rejected? Love it. I mean, you just love to be rejected. It's okay. Raise your hands. None of us. Like, we don't want to be rejected. And it'll happen. Or maybe we're just uncomfortable. Like, some of you probably sitting in the seats after a while. You're getting uncomfortable. It's like, okay, hurry up. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We want to be comforted. Or, or, or third, it's inconvenient. Like, I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing so you could have eternal life. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, I'm, I'm so busy with, I don't know, figuring out what I'm going to eat for dinner that I don't care about your soul eternally. Here's one. They will never change. You know, I think that Pam and I went all these years without ever hearing the gospel because people thought they will never change. But see, that's a lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. We were dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2 says. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, he saved us. It had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with him. So if we're looking at somebody and thinking, man, they, they will never come to Christ. They will never change. I mean, you just don't understand the, the awesomeness of God. Here's, here's one. We don't know what to say. We just don't know what to say. And I kind of get that. I remember when we became Christians in Dallas and people would come up to me and say, I've got a friend who's Jewish. What do I say to him? And I used to say, how about hi? What's going on? How's life? You know, ask questions. Find out where they are. Find out what they believe. But, but let's start with this. Let me just give you five quick handles to hold on to. In fact, I heard this from David Platt a long time ago. Here's the first one. Uh, just speak about the holiness of God. Start out with the holiness of God. We saw it right there. If you start out with the holiness of God, not, don't start out with man, but God is awesome. He's, he's all-powerful, all-present. He's creator. He's Lord. The holiness of God, but secondly, the sinfulness of man. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible's very clear. We're born into sin. And if you don't believe it, go look at somebody's two-year-old. They didn't train them to be that way. Or as, yeah, never mind, I won't say it. (laughs) 
the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid the debt penalty for all mankind, past, present, and future. It's done. Sufficient. Nothing else. There's nothing else we need to add to it. Read Acts 15. The Gentiles were happy. They didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. Think about that one. It's like, okay, we're just going to have faith in Christ. That's plenty for me. But so, so often in our own mind, we want to do something. We want to add something to it. Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient. Nothing else we have to add to it. Everything else is a response to what God has done for us. But then there's a fourth step. That's the necessity of faith. Without faith, is it, impo- it is impossible to please him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. Faith. But I thought you said God is sovereign. He is. But then why does it matter that we have faith? Because he tells us we have to have faith. How do those things work together? Not really sure, but God does. He holds us responsible for not responding in faith. We know that God is sovereign in salvation, but we must put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the fifth thing is the urgency of eternity. We've talked about this these last couple of weeks, the fact that, that Jesus could return at any time. And for those not found in Christ, spend eternity in a godless hell. But for those in Christ, we spend eternity in heaven. And the fact is, We don't deserve salvation, but God, in his mercy and grace, has offered it through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we go. We go. Got time. Go time. As a believer, you have been called to go. And when you're gripped by God's grace, how can you say no? See, when you see God's holiness, it's awesome. When you see the sinfulness of man, it is humbling. When you see his grace, you're amazed by it. And when you hear the call, it is compelling. And as our worship team comes up, this is, I just want to remind you, this is why I say at the end of every service, you are loved because you are. God has put his love upon you, but I also say, and sent. Because we want you to go and to be the aroma of Christ to those that are perishing. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we close out this series. Father, we thank you for you're a holy God. You're an awesome God. You're an all-powerful, all-present, all-amazing God. Father, I just pray for for those maybe that walked in today that had a low view of you or just a, a struggling view of you, Lord. That today they would see you high and lifted up. That you are still on your throne. And maybe right now they would just even ask for forgiveness. For how they've allowed themselves to, to stray away from you. But Lord, I just if you're calling them back to you right now, I pray they would come back to you. 
And Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that's never received Christ as Lord and Savior, today they would confess their sinfulness in light of your holiness. They would ask you to forgive them. And Lord, we know that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Forgive them, Lord. And I pray they would, by faith, embrace you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we love you. Thank you for calling us, for calling us to go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.